Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Zora Neale Hurston has long been known as a key figure of the Harlem Renaissance, in particular for her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. But what you may not know is that she was also a dedicated anthropologist, ultimately becoming known as the foremost authority on Black folklore. Zora Neale Hurston Claiming a Space is a new in-depth documentary that highlights the significant contributions Hurston made to the world of anthropology. Joining me in the studio is Tracy Heather Strain, president and co-founder of the production company, The Film Posse, Corwin Fuller, professor of film studies at Wesleyan University, and writer and director of Zora Neale Hurston Claiming a Space. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you, Callie. It's nice to be here and it's nice to see you. It's nice to see you, and I've seen the film, and it's fabulous, as always. (laughs) I'm so delighted to hear that. It was quite a labor of love, and I had a great team working on it. Everyone was so dedicated. Good. Well, let's start off because I, you know, you and I know Zora Neale Hurston, as I've just said. A lot of people do, but I think there may be many who do not. So who is Zora Neale Hurston? Let's start there. Zora Neale Hurston is an individual that was raised in an all-black town. It's called Eatonville. It was one of the few uh, incorporated all-black towns in the United States at the time she lived there. And she was really someone who thought as a child that folklore, the stuff that she heard on the porch of the general store in her town was fascinating to her. When she was asked to go to the store, she would stay there and hang out and listen. Meanwhile, her parents were back at home. She lived in, she had a mother, a father, and seven siblings. It was a house full of education and religion. Um, But Zora was very imaginative, and her independent streak was encouraged by her mother. Her mother wanted her to be creative, and she had a phrase that she used with all her children. She wanted them to jump at the sun. And this becomes, in in the documentary, uh, something that you start to discover is both a blessing and kind of a curse for her. She's always striving to try to attain something that for most of us might feel unattainable. Mm. Um, let's listen to actually a clip at right at the beginning of the documentary. And this is a piece of Hurston's own writing when she talks about how she would listen to those adults you mentioned. Um, at the end of the clip, we'll hear Irma McLaren, who is an anthropologist. Here it is. It was the habit of the men folks particularly to gather on the store porch of evenings and swap stories. Even the women folks would stop and break a breath with them at times. I'd drag out my leaving as long as possible in order to hear more to allow whatever was being said to hang in my ear. She's one of those children that people would say, go, go away, you know, this is grown folks stuff. And the more they tell her that, the more she wants to hear it. 
Well, that turned out to be just very important for her for the rest of her career and life. But what I was struck by, well, first of all, I was struck, let me just say, Tracy, that I realized I didn't really know much about her personally. I sort of knew the book, um, knew a few other little things, but I didn't know how her growing up, as so often happens, has shaped her. So we know this piece. She's listening. She's taking it all in. We know, as you said, her mom has said, jump at the sun, go for it. But then her mom dies. Um, and then her father seemed not to have any of the same interests. And really, she spends the rest of her life just trying to, you know, make it on her own. It is so sad. We were always so devastated in the office when we came to realize that once Hurston's mother passed away, her father sent her off to a boarding school in Jacksonville, Florida, to where two other siblings were. He, he got remarried very quickly, and he, it seemed like um, he just wasn't interested as much in his, his kids, particularly Zora, who he are, already was at odds with, and, uh, and he didn't give her enough money to finish out the school year. So Zora Hurston is suddenly scrubbing floors and cleaning to stay at school, and she could only manage it for a year. And from that point on, she describes the first several years as the haunted years. They were, she describes them as haunted. And, um, and then f- for much of the time, we really don't know what she was doing with herself. Imagine being on your own at 13 to try to find your way in the world. And the one thing that she worked very hard to continue was her education. Which is what I was, this is, you know, part of the film I was just stunned by, that she pieced that together, figured out how to get herself into high school. And the, you know, I'll give this away so people will know there's more where this comes from in the film, um, changed her age so that she lowered her age so that she could be thought of as younger graduate from high school, and then had a chance at college. Yeah. Zora Neale Hurston was likely 26 years old. She was likely 26 years old. And she there was a rule that if people, younger people could go to school at night. And so she figured out that's how she was going to get to school. And she began high school at night, working during the day. And then she was able to get into a kind of prestigious black prep school called Morgan Academy in Baltimore. And there she shined, her friends saw her, and teachers saw her promise and encouraged her to apply to Howard. She, Howard was interested, but they made her go to Howard Academy, which was their prep school. And then she graduated, she officially graduated from high school. It seems like she might have graduated from high school twice, but then entered Howard University in 1919. And then um, moved to New York and, you know, by a fluke. And we're, we're, I'm, I'm outlining these details because it has much to do with the back end of her life and the surprise, I think, that'll be for a lot of people who thought they knew something about her. Um, You know, meet somebody and they sponsor her to go to Barnard College, where she ends up being the only black young woman, if people know, that was the, quote, sister school of Columbia at that time. Um, And so let's just take a listen to how she felt by being there as the only person there and her comments um, are followed by uh, those of literary scholar Carla Kaplan. I feel my race. Among the thousand white persons, I am a dark rock, surged upon, overswept by a creamy sea. I am surged upon and overswept 
but through it all, I remain myself. She had to make a decision about whether she was going to try to fit in or try to play up her difference. And in true Zora Neale Hurston style, it appears that she did both. So this is really the, the, the beginning of her whole other life that I knew not much about as an anthropologist, as an ethnographic expert. This is where she made the connection with someone who was at the moment looking at anthropology differently than had been looked at before. Here's a piece of the film that I really wanted you to talk about because I didn't know this, that at one point anthropologists were called armchair anthropologists. So they just took information from, shoot, I could have written a diary and they would have read my diary from colonists, from explorers and put it all together. And from that, they made, you know, all kinds of assessments about communities and cultures from their armchair. And here was this guy, Frank Boaz at uh, Barnard, who was saying, that is not correct. We cannot you know, sit in our house and make a determination. And we don't know who are these people anyway, making biased determinations about cultures and, and others. So that was incredible to learn, Tracy, in the film about how she um, became interested in anthropology and, and then therefore took it up. Yeah. So in storytelling terms, Zora Neale Hurston discovering anthropology is the inciting incident, really, because once she discovers anthropology, it changes the course of her life. She becomes fascinated with it because, um, think about it this way, here's the, the young woman who was drawn to the stories on those porches, the porch at, in Eatonville, who suddenly is told that you can look at your own culture and, and it's important and it's worth researching and it could be collected folklore for example could be collected and we could we could say something important about your this culture your culture and Zora Neale Hurston was taken by this Franz Boas was the one the foremost person changing anthropology from as you describe it this armchair anthropology period he didn't think uh, that there were cultures had a hierarchy it was thought that you know, their white civilization was at the top and everyone else was like trying to move up towards this kind of Western white civilization. And he didn't believe that. He said every culture was its own thing. And, and it, 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 it changed over time. And uh, it was it was perfect the way it was. Right. And so and he was considered a major anti-racist. So here you have Zora Neale Hurston. Of course, she was she wants to support anybody who wants to, you know, end racism. But she also saw it as a way to blend her her own interests, uh, her own literature, literary interests, as well as this this newfound interest in anthropology. And she was such a charming person. You know, you had mentioned that she was able to wrangle us, you know, a scholarship basically on the spot one night, and uh, and so she's she it's Boaz sees her as someone who could go and collect folklore. And in an authentic way, in an authentic way, although it took a little time for her to get her act together, so to speak, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, she was learning as well. But but way from armchair. Now it's participant anthropology where you go and you are a part of, uh, you know, the the community and the people that you are observing. Right. And her brand of participant anthropology or and her observation was a little different mm -hmm. than I would say the way that Franz Boas mm -hmm. and other people were doing it at the time because 
Zora Neale Hurston recognized that African Americans, when asked particular questions about themselves, were used to just giving an answer that seemed polite to get by. She called it feather bed resistance. Mm -hmm. She contrasted with Native Americans who basically just said no, right? <laughs> but because of our history, we we have to try to please. We wear the mask. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. That's a better way of saying it. And uh, and so um, she did it. She wasn't able to get through that at first, but then she realized, yes, people, I'm going to share some of me and and make people feel comfortable so they don't feel like an object of study. I mean, who wants to be examined? And I and just to make so everybody listening gets a clear understanding of why this was all revolutionary is that we're talking about 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s where uh, segregation was, you know, deeply embedded into this country. I mean, nobody could even at that moment, think of desegregation, let alone experience it in most of the, if you were African-American. So she's working against that context or working in that context and talking about, hey, um, I'm going to go study people that many have decided are not worthy to even be human, let alone be uh, have a culture. Right, exactly. Right. It's like, yes, they're barely human, if human, right? And then that sometimes people, and we don't get into this part in the film, but sometimes people thought of it as, oh, African, like they saw African culture as higher than African American culture because, oh, the people here are degraded form of, of Africans. And she did not subscribe to this at all. And she also wanted to show people that the folklore wasn't static. Black people weren't in this, like, amber, you know. It was evolving. Evolving. And, she, and in the film, we share uh, ways that she demonstrates that it is evolving. And, and I, I really enjoy that part of the film. And she's talking to, she's sharing it with Langston Hughes and explaining how his, his writings played a role in that. Well, let me just say that, you know, one of the things that makes this film so engaging um, aside from these stories that many of us have never heard about her, are her voice. We hear that her actual voice. We do. You do have some actors um, reading some of her writings, but also she took uh, photographs and moving film. She had a film camera. This is like unheard of at the time. And and then and then you're taking a film camera to document black folk in America. This is like two double unheard ofs. And the fact that it's been preserved and you have it and we can see it. It's really something. Yeah, it was really exciting when we went to the Library of Congress and saw the footage. And, you know, it, it was my mind started racing. How can we use as much of this as possible to tell this story? Unfortunately, a lot of the still, photo, the still photographs you see in the film are not hers. We don't know what happened to the 6,000 photographs she refers to in, um, in one of her letters to Franz Boas. I keep thinking, I keep hoping that maybe some of the photos we're seeing were hers or somehow the collection got lost and no, it got misidentified. I'm hoping it wasn't, I don't want to give it away, we're, yeah, you know, I destroyed, know. destroyed or, you know, but uh, anyway, but this footage was is so amazing because you can see that the people that she was filming, the people connected with her, uh, sure, there's some people hamming it up a little bit, but who... Who doesn't do that when someone's paying attention to them? But you could feel, I feel like you can feel Hurston's love for her subject. You know, the footage is particularly of the woman coming to camera. And you can tell it's ethnographic filmmaking, right? Mm -hmm. The woman walks to camera. She's turning right. She's turning left. Mm -hmm. 
it's I think she's so beautiful. And also just seeing footage of women lounging, black women, just at their place. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's quite something to see. I really tried to use as much of that footage as possible and also to to bring a kind of foregrounding of black women and their lives in the film. And so hopefully that came across. No, it came across beautifully. Um, I'm, we're not going to go through every detail of the film because here's the thing. She struggled a lot. She was hand to mouth and she died poor. So I want to ask you, from your working on this film now, how you then see all of this fantastic work that she did as an anthropologist, though not one that ever received full respect in the field, um, with her work that more people are familiar with, with her novels, um, and particularly with Their Eyes Were Watching God. How do you see that all coming together? I see that Their Eyes Were Watching God is a novel that's incorporating everything of her life and her experiences. We describe it as a mixture of autobiography, memory, research. Um, it's She has a narrative. The lead character, Janie, goes on this adventure. And she and the, the way the novel is structured is she's coming back to tell her girlfriend about the experience. And it's so rich with description. And there's one moment in the film, which is our very favorite moment, when we have the setting sun and 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 she's just describing moments in people's lives and the way she describes the end of the workday to me is just so fascinating because you can see that mix of literature and ethnographic detail in her writing and then she goes on we and and we go on to put a clip it uh some of her, her writing in um uh, about juke joints, being in a juke joint and the dancing, the feeling the love and the energy and the excitement and places she's been. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. A lot. A yeah, lot. She right. was documenting in these places. And so it's she's not just it's not made up. It's it's drawing from a range of sources. And I think it's really powerful. And it's so it's it's the it's the you know the climatic moment of our documentary. And it is something that I hope for those of for the people who have read their eyes were watching God. I hope it actually brings a new feeling to those moments, mm-hmm. um, especially knowing now that it's so rich with the ethnographic research. Well, you know, Zora Neale Hurston herself had a comeback uh, via Alice Walker, the novelist Alice Walker. She you know, sort of excavated her work, um, pushed her out there, made people be aware of their eyes were watching God, her other books of Meals and Men and all the rest of the writings that she had done and who she was. She put her back in the canon, as they say, the the, the uh, literature canon. Um, so I wonder if this film then takes us to another level because we didn't know the Zora Neale Hurston as the anthropologist, as the one going to collect the black folklore, as the one putting herself out there. And then now, you know, this is in another turn, we have a new way of looking at her and her work based on that work. And before you answer that and respond to it, I just want folks to hear a little bit of how she was on the road. So she and that participating as she was doing was, you know, 
working out, talking, singing. And there's a clip of her singing that we wanted to play. Um, this was captured. She was on a trip assisting two white folklorists recording black folk songs for the Library of Congress. And here she is uh, singing. Sometimes the researchers captured Hurston's own singing. That's just fantastic. I actually just was lucky enough that Daphne Brooks' book about black female criticism also has some of Zora Neale Hurston's singing. So that's the only reason why I knew that she had some songs that were captured. But this is quite amazing that you got down to all the primary elements that really bring her to life in a different way. Yeah, I one of my favorite things about documentary filmmaking when I and I've primarily made historical documentaries is the research. I love going to archives. I love pouring over the material. Uh, I love reading the books too, but when you get from the secondary source books and then dive into the primary sources, it's so exciting, especially when you get to touch the papers that Zorino Hurston or others have touched. It's it's quite something. Uh, and so uh, with the team of people, we, we organize all of this in a database and then in wrestle with how do you tell the story with all these elements, always remembering that it's not just the audio. It's a visual medium and sort of to mix that. And then to have the music was this bonus, right? And we have a little bit of her on, uh, in a, from a radio show as well in the documentary. So we tr- I tried to f- have her appear in all the d- as many dimensions as possible. So I always ask folks um, who come with films and books, what do you want the um, viewers to take away? I am excited that this documentary um, is going to reach a general audience. There is a lot of writing done for academic audiences, but as you said earlier, um, I'm, I pray that this documentary will bring people to Zora Neale Hurston who've never heard of her before, add enrich people's understanding of her who already knew of her primarily as a literary figure. And then for those who even know about the anthropology, maybe they haven't heard these, this music or, you know, or seen all of this, this material that we include in the film. Um, I want people to get several things out of it, and, uh, and a couple are. I would like Zora Neale Hurston to get her due. Um, uh, there are so many under... Uh, there's so many important figures whose lives are little known, their journeys not known. And I think it's particularly instructive for younger people to understand that people are not usually one hit one, I mean, overnight hits. Mm-hmm. It takes work. She was tenacious. She was well-read. Her the, the, the writing just didn't come out of thin air. She'd worked very hard. I got to see all the revisions and papers and versions she did on some of her writing. And I, I think that's important for us to remember. There's also a tendency sometimes to think that black creativity just you know, comes out of the sky. Oh, we're just so, you're such creative people. <laughs> and, and that the hard work that we do and the research is is um, undervalued or under-recognized or obscured maybe is even a better way of saying it. And Zora Neale Hurston worked very hard for everything that she was able to accomplish during her lifetime. And, and she didn't let setbacks stop her. I mean, this woman, Guggenheim says no. <laughs> This person says no. She just picks herself up, and in terms of the Guggenheim, she 
she tries again. And not only does she get one Guggenheim, she gets two, right? And so I think that she's a kind of, I find her to be a role model. I mean, sometimes I'm supposed to be applying for grants. I get like nervous. Oh, I don't know if I should apply for this. I'm like, I'm going to be like Zora Neale Hurston and just go for things. Um, because what do you have to lose? They just say no. And then you try again or you find another way. Tracy Heather Strain is the president and co-founder of the production company, The Film Posse. Corwin Fuller, professor of film studies at Wesleyan University and writer and director of the new film, Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. 